Hi everybody, JP here. Just wanted to tell everybody how excited I am that the AANS has relocated this year's meeting to my beloved home state of Florida in sunny Orlando. It'll take place August 21st to 25th. Be on the lookout as housing opens next month in March and registration will open in May. Once again, we hope to see everybody at the AANS meeting this year, August 21st to 25th in Orlando, Florida. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we continue our mini-series on neurosurgery and cognition, and we are delighted to be joined by Julie Politzis. Julie is a friend of the podcast. She was on one of our early episodes talking about women in neurosurgery, and she's one of the founding members, I believe, of WINS. Is that correct, Julie? Uh, Yes, I'm getting more senior as time goes on. (laughs) It's wonderful, right? So we are going to focus today's conversation on um, neurosurgery and pain. And by that, I mean not the spine kind, but pain in the brain. And I'd like for Julie just to introduce herself because I she's telling me that she's actually the chair of neuroscience at Albany, which is actually, I would think, a bigger title than being a chair of neurosurgeon, nurse, neurosurgery, which I, I apologize for all the neurosurgeons who are chairs out there, but I think that's a bigger title. So Julie, tell us a little about how you got interested in this area. Thanks so much, uh, Mike and JP, for having me on today. I really appreciate it. And it's um, something that I love to talk about. Um, You know, actually, when I became interested in functional neurosurgery, it was during residency. Um, You know, at the time, uh, I was really in awe of uh, the outcomes that people with deep brain stimulation could have. I also was working on my PhD in electrophysiology, so it was a nice uh, complement to those things. As I've grown in my career, uh, while I still am really humbled by what deep brain stimulation can do for Parkinson's patients and others, uh, I've begun to get more interested in chronic pain just because it's such a complex disease that we have so few answers for. You know, it is really interesting to consider that from the functional neurosurgery standpoint in treating pain, you are treating this subjective state that so many of our patients suffer from, and yet in the other fields of neurosurgery and indeed in other fields of medicine, we're all treating these secondary, even tertiary, external things to the nervous system that the body perceives as pain, whereas in your domain, you are treating the very thing itself that generates that experience. How do you, as a physician or indeed as a scientist, approach that distinction between uh, treating the cause of a subjective experience versus manipulating the generator of that experience? Wow, that's um, such an insightful question. And, you know, I, I think there's many ways to tackle this. And I think when we talk about chronic pain, there are so many unanswered questions. So I think first, you know, rather than thinking of pain as a sensory experience, it's really important to think of it as a tri-dimensional experience. Sensory, 
cognitive and emotional. And mm. all those um, aspects are very real things that have very real ramifications in our brain function and how we perceive pain. Um, and, you know, so I think that we have to tackle uh, as pain neurosurgeons all aspects of that process um, through our therapies that are neurosurgical, uh, as well as through a holistic approach to the patient to really stop what's going on in the brain and that repetitive kind of uh, thought cycle and our sensory cycle that develops in the chronic pain state. Now, Julie, I remember uh, looking at a USC library and seeing this very old textbook from the 1950s, and it was from, uh, I believe it was uh, White and Sweet. And it, it reminds me that the, some of the origins of our specialty, right, of neurosurgery were, were in pain, right? That pain was one of the original reasons for neurosurgeons to exist uh, at, at the inception, if you will, of the field, right? And so maybe you can remind us about, you know, how, how far we've come with that. Like, what kind of procedures are you doing as a neurosurgeon for pain? Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, thanks for bringing that up because I think that's really a great point that neurosurgery and um, the treatment of chronic pain were really hand in hand. And oftentimes we forget about it. And when we as neurosurgeons think about people that treat pain, we say, oh, you know, that's the anesthesia specialists or the PM&R guys and gals. And, you know, really as neurosurgeons, we have this historical ownership uh, of this disease. And, you know, so I think when we're thinking about how to treat this, you know, we of course have different neuromodulatory devices um, and, and we can put those anywhere where you might feel pain. So, you know, say you have uh, a peripheral nerve injury. Well, you know, uh, when you're thinking about that, you could put potentially a peripheral nerve stimulator in. You could go up a little bit uh, in the nervous system and go to the dorsal root ganglion. You could go into spinal cord stimulation, which we traditionally think as of dorsal column stimulation, but indeed we can actually stimulate the dorsal horn with some of our new waveforms. We can go up into the brainstem and you know do different procedures, both stimulation and ablative procedures in that region to stop pain. And then we can get up into the brain itself where we think about deep brain stimulation, um, it, you know, which is kind of where the field has gone. We've gone away from lesioning and into stimulation. But having said that, what's old is new, you know, flip-flops. And so, you know, there's also some very good lesioning procedures that can be done in different regions of the brain to change that perception, such as cingulotomy. Or, you know, if we're moving further down, um, you know, you can do talk about chordotomy. You can talk about myelotomy. Now, admittedly, this is an area of our literature with which I am minimally familiar uh, so early as I am in, in my own training. But I wonder with these patients who uh, get treated for these uh, primary pain disorders successfully, um, downstream, further down the line, what kind of outcomes do you see for them, not only in terms of the primary symptoms that you're treating, but secondary or other aspects of their life and functional status? Um, I, you know, I can imagine if you have someone with an orthopedic issue in their leg and you fix that, they become more mobile and perhaps their cardiovascular health improves. Do you, similar, do you similarly see an improvement in other domains of the functional aspect of your patients 
once their pain is under control, neurocognitive if they're no longer distracted by their pain, um, or even cardiovascular if they can get up and move more? Absolutely. And, you know, it's complicated, though. So one of the things that um, insurance requires and, you know, just to think about this, if we're going to put in a spinal cord stimulator, our patients have to have a psychological evaluation. And, you know, so you want to think about what would it be like if all spine surgery patients had to do that? And the reason isn't to say, oh, you know, this isn't a real syndrome. The reason is chronic pain ruins your life and it ruins all those things you're talking about. It ruins your sleep. It ruins your relationship. It ruins your, you know, cardiovascular status. And what the pain evaluation or the psychology evaluation is meant to look at is do people have the capability of getting better? What will be the barriers to them getting better and how can we help them with coping with those strategies? So, it's wonderful when we do a treatment and it has meaningful results and, you know, we can do nice things like drive that pain scale score down from whatever it is to, you know, a, a nice manageable score that allows people to live life. But we also have to treat the other aspects uh, of pain, especially with people that have these long standing diseases. They fall into patterns and habits and thought processes and relationship issues and so many things that can affect their functional outcome. So I think the best way to tackle this is to give people that meaningful sensory pain relief, but then also to address the emotional and cognitive components with a multidisciplinary approach. Now, that's something I really wanted to ask about as we got into this conversation further. Um, My chief background before going into medicine was in a neuroscience department, and I did a lot of behavioral work with animal training and understanding animal behavior in, of course, response to stimulus. And so you mentioned how this chronic pain cripples people, affects every aspect of their life. And as you said, they learn thought processes. They learn physical reactions to this chronic stimulus. Um, I, I wonder what is the time course like? when you watch your patients unlearn these behaviors and what other professionals or interventions are involved besides the pain neurosurgeon to help them unlearn those associations? So uh, JP, getting back to your um, neuroscience experience, you know, I think um, I just want to take the opportunity to point out that one of the issues with the disease is very much what you just point out. You know, when you think about the, the testing you did in the lab, when we're talking about rats or mice, generally we're using allodynia or mechanical thresholds as a surrogate for pain. And that's very different than what patients experience. They may experience a part of that. Um, One of the pretty neat things we did recently is we developed um, the first swine neuropathic pain model. And that was really cool because uh, pigs are really smart and really interactive. And so we were actually able to see reversal of pain behavior like guarding. And so I I just want to, from a science perspective, say we need to think about different models that are closer to the the human um, aspect. And Mm. just to go even further on that tangent, we know that men and women feel pain very differently. We know that um, different uh, people of different racial backgrounds feel pain very differently. So we really have to get some good models for these things. And as we're studying people, we have to take advantage of that. Then to the question that you really asked, you know, how, what's the, the time frame here? Um, it really, you know, I think there's uh, this just kind of like what we see with other patients, you know, with our 
our spine patients too. You know, I think when you're in excruciating pain, the initial reaction is, oh my gosh, you're so thankful to have gotten better. And then, you know, you get to the six week mark and we start freeing you up to do more things. And, you know, sometimes people overdo it and have more pain. And, you know, then generally kind of by three months, they're feeling pretty good. I think what then happens in the in the chronic pain population is, you know, at three months, once they've established this new normal, all the other aspects of their pain come hunkering down on them. And, you know, they realize I'm not in pain, but, you know, I'm still like completely overweight, unfit. My marriage is a wreck, whatever it is. And so for these folks, we make sure that this is a team approach. We have a pain psychologist. We have a support group. Uh, we have like group therapy sessions, which can be super helpful. Um, you know, uh, people on their own. I like to empower people to take charge of their own care. So we talk about mindfulness and meditation. And of course, you know, more traditional things like physical therapy, um, injections, they can also be useful. Truly. Tell us more about, you said there were many aspects of or dimensions of pain and one of them was cognitive, right? I'd like to get back to that area because I think it's a very important area. And I remember when I was in residency, I got very interested in this concept of being able to measure pain through imaging like functional MRI. You brought up the issue of animal models and we can be reminded that it wasn't that long ago that it was, might be generally felt that animals can't feel pain, right? That they don't appreciate pain the way humans do. Tell us more about the cognition of pain, how you study that, how you measure that, where does it really reside in the human brain and how is it, how is it processed? So, you know, I think this is an exciting topic. There's been a lot of work out of Sean Mackey's group in, at Stanford, um, really looking at functional imaging of pain in, in patients and, you know, identifying different aspects that are involved in this. And, you know, as is everything in kind of a, a reward system type pathway, you know, often the nucleus accumbens can be uh, involved. And then we also talk about, you know, other things in the reward decision pathway. So you're thinking about the medial frontal cortex and a variety of aspects that kind of um, are things that we think about, but um, not really think about when we're thinking about the brain pathways as, you know, JP will be studying for his written board. So these kind of um, overlay in there. And, you know, so neuroimaging is one way to do this. One of my kind of niche interests is uh, Parkinson's in pain. Um, you know, Mike, I'm sure as you've operated on the spines of patients with Parkinson's, you might note that they don't quite do as well as your other patients. And, you know, why is that? And I think that is because, you know, Parkinson's affects all aspects of the brain and the way they sensory process, the way they cognitively process is different. So we actually did um, some um, fMRI studies. My PhD student did this and she was uh, got the neurosurgery paper of the year this year for this work in pain. And, um, you know, basically what she found was there's different phenotypes. And so patients that who's had Parkinson's in pain and whose pain got better after deep brain stimulation had a different baseline imaging um, and then patients that didn't. And then when we added the stimulation, they had a different pattern of response. So that's talking about imaging. Um, you know, if interested, you know, we can talk a little bit about EEG and some other uh, biomarkers as well. Well, that is fascinating to think that the presence of another disease state can affect the organic circuits leading to 
these pathological pain states. Um, maybe perhaps we could drill a little further into that. Um, has, has this literature or this area of your research extended to uh, such a point that you're even finding new or perhaps refined targets when you have overlapping pathologies like this? Yeah, you know, so I think it's um, it, it's really an interesting thing, you know. So I, I, the traditional deep brain stimulation literature, you know, when you talk about what targets you should use on, you know, the the boards when this question is asked, it's usually like the ventroposterior lateral or ventroposterior medial thalamus and the periaqueductal gray. But now, you know, there's been work showing that. The ACC um, may be a, a better target because that plays a role in this. And, you know, people are always looking for different areas to modulate. And interestingly, you know, as Mike had pointed out, where um, the pain was one of the uh, original things that neurosurgeons focused on, actually, it was the first indication that we tested DBS for. So people had been trying this over and over since, you know, 1950s to try, well, you know, they've been doing lesioning, but like in the 1990s, they did a deep brain stimulation for pain. The problem here again, is that there's different phenotypes that we don't quite understand yet. So that imaging, um, as well as um, any type of EEG, MEG, ECOG, that can also be really helpful in uh, understanding these different phenotypes. Well, I want to change gears a little bit, Julie, because it's such an important topic. We would be remiss as neurosurgeons not to talk about it. And that is the opiate crisis. And I know you're kind of an expert on this. Tell us how neurosurgery in general, or maybe functional neurosurgery plays into all of this. I mean, we're talking about something like 50 to 70,000 Americans dying per year. It's less than coronavirus for sure, but it, it's been ongoing for some time now, right? Tell me how this impacts you, your practice. Do patients come seeking these treatments? Is there is there more uh, research in this area? Tell us about how this plays in the bigger epidemiological arena. Yeah, you know, so uh, this is such a big deal. And, you know, I, I know that you as a spine surgeon know that your patients that are on lower opioid doses or better yet are not on opiates do better with um spine surgery. And the same thing has actually been shown in our patient group with spinal cord stimulation. If you're not on opiates and take that away as a problem, um, you know, that patients do better. So I think one of the first things to do is, you know, to educate ourselves and our residents and our medical students, because this is a, you know, affects all specialties. One, I think when you're thinking about um, numeric rating scale score, when that was rolled out, it was really well-intentioned. However, people now kind of look at that number and say, oh, or, you know, did say, I have to treat this. And that led to a lot of the opioids. I think when you take that number, you have to put it in perspective because that number can be widely different depending on the patient and depending on who's asking the question and the relationship between those two. Um, so, you know, that's one aspect. Don't chase that number. Then I think, you know, when you're talking about chronic pain, there are a few patients and, you know, I have a chronic pain practice. There are a few patients that need opioids. And, you know, we do these in respectable doses under, you know, opioid contracts. And, you know, I, I think that for the right patient, this is an appropriate treatment. 
Unfortunately, this is not the right treatment for many people. And I think we as neurosurgeons and we as doctors in general don't understand that we have other options other than opioids to give people. You know, we always talk about gabapentin or pregabalin. And, you know, so sometimes if you're having uh, chronic pain patients that are having a hard time getting out of the hospital, you'll try that. Well, the problem with those drugs is sometimes they're not well tolerated. There's some insurance costs, but really they take three to four weeks to work and people in pain want to be out of pain. So with some of the things I've started doing more recently are using some of the antidepressants, um, SNRIs and SSRIs. Interestingly, though it takes them four weeks to treat depression, it the, re- the results on pain relief can be seen in three of, three to four days. And so um, those are really effective things that we can use instead. So I think we have to just change our mindset that when somebody comes in and says they're in pain, they're not asking for opioids. They're asking for help. And that help can be a variety of different things and a variety of different medications across all classes. Well, Dr. Pulisic, I've, I've got to say that I could not agree with you more on the issue of the the treating the number of the pain score that patients give. That is certainly one of my uh, chief bees in the bonnet, especially as a junior resident holding a day pager and an overnight pager in the hospital. Um, And in fact, many of the EMRs, including uh, Epic, the most common one nationwide, requires you when you put in a PRN pain order, you have to give the range of numerical score for which this drug is given and the range which this drug is given. And pharmacy will call and harass you if any of them overlap. So we're really put into that box and kind of forced down that road and thinking that way when we are treating our patient's pain. Um, Perhaps outside of the scientific and the research context, but in a more clinical and everyday applicable sense, what is a good rule of thumb or a good tool that clinicians can use to more accurately and more thoughtfully assess our patient's pain and try to grade it perhaps relative to that individual patient? Yeah, you know, so I think we need to be aware that, you know, if I had my way first JP, I'd get rid of the NRS score. Um, And, you know, I don't think it's an effective measure. I think that it is so variable. And sometimes you almost feel like people are pulling a number out of out of a hat. But, you know, I think it's um, not very sensitive to individual patient differences either. We know that, you know, women have higher scores than men do on this. We know that um, people that identify as uh, a Latino um, tend to have higher scores. And there is pathophysiologic differences that account for those. And until we can understand that and implement that into our records, that's a problem. You know, it's been interesting too, when Um, There's actually literature looking at um, the race of the patient and the race of the provider and asking the question. So Asian patients were likely to, more likely to say they had a lower pain score when a, a Caucasian doctor asked that question rather than an Asian doctor. There's so many variables. So I think you have to really just, you know, like you do with everything else in neurosurgery, go see the patient, see what they're looking like see what their activity level is, you know, is the pain preventing them from like using their incentives parameter? Is it pain preventing them from getting out of bed effectively? Is, you know, what's the heart rate? What's the blood pressure? Other things going along with that and putting this into context. And, you know, again, thinking outside opiates and using other neuromodulators, it would be really helpful. So Julie, we spent a lot of time talking about the, the importance of pain 
uh, as an experience, but how about the positive aspects? I find myself telling patients a lot that pain is important to protect us. Pain uh, as, a, as a sensory modality maybe one of the most important, right? Tell us about that element. And if, if we end up treating pain too extensively, do we change the protective mechanisms in the patient? I mean, how do we really balance these aspects of what we do? As yeah. And, you know, I think that's a question that comes up in, in clinic a lot where, you know, people are worried that, um, you know, the pain they're feeling is representative of them doing some sort of, of damage to the, their cells. And, you know, I, I think, like you said, the the pain process exists to protect us. So when we stick our finger on that stove, we pull our finger away. And I think that's very true, especially in acute pain. It becomes a little bit different in chronic pain because rather than having that stimulator, uh, like uh, that stimulation, you're not actually always putting your finger on the stove, but we in our mind get in this cycle of, oh my gosh, what if I touch the stove? what's my pain going to be like? And, you know, so this emotional cognitive aspect can kind of overplay that sensory response. So, you know, to answer your question, I think that protective sensory mechanism is very important with acute pain and even some acute exacerbations of chronic pain. But for chronic pain in general, you know, I think we have to be cognizant of what else is going on and what else is playing a role in that thought process that's kind of on repeat for the patients. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, thinking not only about um, the multimodal experience of pain and, and the various facets w in which it affects not only our patients, but our own lives and our view of the world, um, but the way that we can treat that when it veers from the normal to the abnormal and becomes a pathological experience. Um, and in particular, remembering there at the end that this is a normal part of the human sensorium, which does have its role when it's not out of balance, again, through a pathology or disease state. Um, it's given me a lot to think about, uh, for sure, Dr. Politsis. So we want to respect your time. Uh, for Dr. Wang and myself and everyone listening, thank you for joining us once again on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure.